This past summer, I was in the San Juan Mountains in Colorado, and I was on a hike by myself. I took a trail, and I got to this river. And I knew that I had an option at that point. I could go on the lower trail. That was option A of this trail. Or I could cross the river and go on the upper side of the trail. I was told by people that if you go across the river and you go on the upper side, well, there's some spectacular views of a waterfall. And so I said, I'll cross. Now, I looked for a place to cross where I wouldn't get too wet, you know, so I thought, um, but I couldn't really find any. So I decided, okay, I'm going to cross. But then I had to decide, could I cross? Was it possible to cross? You see, the, the river was about 15 feet wide, and it was mostly shallow, one to two feet in most places, except that I noticed that on the other side of the river, that there was probably, it's probably about three to four feet. Look, I didn't mind getting wet, you know, but that wasn't my concern was the water, at least getting wet. The concern was the current. At that, you know, if that's that deep and then there's a current in the water, and, you know, given this massive Hulk-sized body that I have, I thought, well, will I be able to withstand the current once I go inside? And uh, so um, I decided, you know what, I better take in some reinforcement. And so I went and found this large stick, this branch really, and I lugged it with me as I crossed the river. And as I got to the deeper part, I could feel that current, and it was just pushing me down. And I took that stick and I shoved it into the riverbed, and I just pushed myself off until I got to the other side. I was reminded of that little jaunt when I read chapter 3 of Joshua. Because here's the people of God. They are about, they can see the promised land, but there's a river in the way, and they're going to have to cross this river. And they're asking themselves to that question, can we cross? Can we cross? I mean, they have been traveling for many years, if you recall, because ever since the people of God have been redeemed from slavery in Egypt, God says, I'm going to take you to the promised land. And now they're east of the river on the plains of Moab and they can see the promised land across the way but there's this obstacle there's this river and it wasn't simply like the river I crossed no it's a little different as we'll discover well as you've heard in the passage uh, God is the central figure in this passage, right? He's the one who will miraculously dry up the river. He will cut off the water so that the people of God cross into the promised land. You know why? Because God will do whatever it takes for Him to fulfill His promise to His people. Even though it looks impossible at times to you and to me. But what I find surprising in this chapter, which is about the mighty, redemptive, sovereign act of God. It's about the display of His power. But yet, as His people are going to see His power, is His people to respond? Are His people to do something? Are they just to be passive? His people are not to be passive, are they? Yes, for one hand, it's about God's mighty display of His power, but His people are not to be passive. And you and I... We have been given promises by God. 
We have been given promises that God will be with us, that God will preserve us, that God will protect us, that God will change us. That God is taking us to that eternal promised land, glory, the presence of God, right? Does that mean now that he's, He promised that and He's done all these mighty works, particularly in Jesus Christ, that we sit back and do nothing? No. Like the Israelites, in the face of God's mighty acts, we are called to consecrate ourselves, to follow the ark, and to take a step of faith. That's what I want us to look at this morning from this chapter. So the first thing, we are to consecrate ourselves. What we see is that the spies, and from the end of chapter 2, the spies had gone into Jericho, and they've come back and they reported everything that they had seen and heard to Joshua. And then Joshua directs the people to move. They are in Shittim. Now, Shittim is about six miles away from the river. And he tells the people of God, we want you to move closer, and you're going to camp near the Jordan River. So hundreds of thousands, okay, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, they, they leave Shittim, and they go closer to the river. And they're there, we see in verse 1, for three days. Three days, they're camping, and they have a good look at the river. So here's the question. What did they see? What kind of river was it? Well, we have a hint. Verse 15, it was harvest time, and the river was overflowing the banks. It was not a gentle stream, 15 feet wide. To put up the slide, just to kind of situate you, you see uh, this is, you know, you see the Sea of Galilee to the north, and then the Dead Sea to the south, and, the, and that region is called the Jordan Valley. And that valley region can vary for anywhere from 3 miles to 14 miles. And within that valley region, there's the river's floodplain. So, and this is what we're finding here in this chapter. It's, it floods, right, at certain times of the year. And that floodplain can be as wide as a mile, anywhere from 200 yards to a mile. And so what that means is, is that when they look at this plain, it's, there's a lot of vegetation before you get to the actual water. All right, there, you know, some scholars talk about a, a veritable jungle. There's thickets, it's deep brush. As a matter of fact, if you were to go to a Jeremiah 12, 5, you would see there, it talks about the thickets of Jordan. It's, it's fascinating. So we don't usually think about that because we live in the desert, you know. And so, here, but when you think about the river channel itself, all right, it is about 90 to 100 feet wide. And some have calculated the depth of the river to be anywhere from 3 to 12 feet. All right. So, and because of the drop of elevation from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea, you have this strong current all right, that's pushing this river. So what we find, what they're seeing, the people of God, they see the promised land on the other side. They see this river that's swollen with water, a strong current. We can call it a raging river. And you kind of be wondering, what is going through the head? That is why, okay, what did we sing? On Jordan's calm and tranquil banks? 
No, on Jordan Stormy Banks. The hymn writer got it right. So they're looking at this raging river. And it's, you've got to ask your question. Why did God do this? God could have had them cross any other place. There are a lot of different places across into the promised land. God, was he surprised? Oh, I forgot. This was flood time. No. No, he did not get it wrong. He wasn't surprised. It's almost as if he takes him to the verge of the Jordan River on purpose. And he wants them to see... He wants them to see how huge this obstacle is. There are no boats. There's no bridge. They must have wondered. I can imagine one of those little boys, about 10 and 11 years old, going to mommy and daddy and say, So, how are we going to cross? I forgot my floaties in Egypt. This is going to be tough. You think about it. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. They're talking men and women, old men, old women, infirmed and sickly people, babies, boys and girls, sheep, cattle, oxen, wagons and carts filled with possessions. How do you take them across? You know they're wondering, Lord, what are you doing? They must have thought, there's just no way to cross. Doesn't God do that to you and to me? Doesn't he do that? He brings you in circumstances and situations face to face with things that are just seemingly impossible, difficult. And you wonder, there is just no way I'm going to make it through this. There is just no way I'm going to come out on the other side. Why does he do it? I suppose there are lots of reasons, but I'll tell you one. So that we pay attention to Him. To His mighty acts. To His display of power. And so in verse 5, what does God tell them to do? Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord. And as Jeff reminded us last week, the Lord in all caps, the covenant-keeping God, will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourselves. Now, we know that consecrate means what? To be holy, to be set apart, separated from sin, separated unto God, to sanctify. Now, Joshua doesn't tell us, you know, it doesn't specify how they're to consecrate themselves. But, if you go to Exodus 19, when the people of God at the foot of Mount Sinai, they're given instructions there as well to be consecrated to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. And what does God tell them through Moses? This is how they're to consecrate themselves. They're to wash their clothes and abstain from sexual relations. And you go, oh, that's weird. That's it? Yes, wash your clothes and abstain from sexual relations. Now, think about that with me for a moment. If, if it means... If the people were to wash their clothes in preparation for going across in the promised land, could it not be a symbolic way that God was saying to them, I want you to separate yourself from all the stuff that's been clinging to you, all that sin, all that spiritual impurity. I want you to be washed clean of that. In other words, he's talking about confessing and repenting of sin. 
yes, an external rite, but it's something that's supposed to happen in the heart. And if indeed they were to abstain from sexual relations, could it not be that God is saying to them, look, I want you to see clearly what I'm going to do. And I want you to enjoy the promises I have for you. And I want you to set aside even legitimate desires so that you pay attention to me. Focus on me. Not your sin, not even good things, but me. So don't be distracted even by good things. And so if you've been grown, if you've grown cold in your relationship with God, consecrate yourself. If you've been harboring secret sins, O people of God, confess it and consecrate yourselves to the Lord that you might enjoy the blessings that God has promised. Surely there are days in your life when the weight of your sin is about to crush you. And you try to figure out, how do I get beyond my sin? I've been struggling with this sin for years. It seems so entrenched, so deeply embedded in my life. God, will I ever come to enjoy your blessed presence? Will I ever come to enter into your presence and enjoy sweet communion with you again? Because this just seems impossible that I'll get beyond it. And God says to you who are struggling with sin to consecrate yourself, to forsake sin and focus on God. You see, even in the face of the mighty acts of God and that great redemptive work in Jesus Christ, you are not called to be passive. This is a day for you and me to consecrate ourselves. This is not a time for business as usual. Something extraordinary is going to happen to the people of God and God wants His people to be prepared. This is not the time for business as usual. This is the day to give up even legitimate things. Why? Because you want to see God clearly. You want to see His magnificence. You want to see His glory. You want to enter into His presence and His blessedness. Is that what you want? This is the time to stop being an if and but person. You know what I mean? Sure, God, I'll forsake sin, but, but. Sure, God, I will forego my legitimate rights and pleasures if, if. By the grace of God, will you set aside your ifs and buts? And by the grace of God, consecrate yourself to Him. Because when you do, you show that God is sufficient for your life and for your soul. And He is your great delight. Could you have anyone who loves you better than your God? And so, people of God... He tells us to consecrate ourselves, but secondly, he says, follow the ark. Follow the ark. In verse 3 of chapter 3, we read that the officers 
of Israel went to all the people, all the Israelites, and told them, he says, when you see the Levitical priests, these Levites, when they lift up the ark and begin to carry the ark, you break camp and you follow the ark. Follow the ark. Now what's interesting, if you will look at chapters 3 and 4, Ark of the Covenant appears 17 times. It's like God wants to get our attention. Focus on the ark. This is what's important here. Okay. Now, it doesn't seem kind of odd. I mean, from one perspective, if there were some, you know, non-Israelites kind of watching this, it would say, why are these people following this piece of furniture? Right? So, put up the next slide. Oh, my. Uh, okay. If you want to read about the ark, you can go to, and the dimensions of it, you can go to Exodus uh, 25. But the Ark of the Covenant is basically this, this sacred wooden box, this chest. Uh, it's about four feet uh, long, about like this table, right? Two and a half feet wide and about two and a half feet high. And, uh, and it's covered with gold. And it was made at the Lord's command. Now, the covering for the Ark was called a mercy seat. Right. And and it made out of pure gold as well. And so and out of that piece of the mercy seat, God instructed his people to make these two heavenly creatures, angelic creatures called the cherubim, and you see that behind me, and with their wings outstretched toward one another. And the scriptures, you, there are various passages of scripture that says that God was enthroned upon the cherubim. Because that was his throne room, so to speak. Now inside the ark. All right, there are various things. And you, you know, there's the jar of manna, there's Aaron's rod, but particular, of particular importance are the tablet of the law of God. And so what I think we're to understand from this is that the ark is the symbolic, physical expression of the presence of God. It is not God but it's an expression of the presence of God. But not merely the presence of God, but when you think about the law of God being housed in the ark, it talks to us about the holy and righteous presence of God. But not simply the holy and righteous presence of God, but because of the mercy seat, it also tells us that this God is merciful. You see, that's critical because how could a holy and righteous God be present to a sinful people unless he were merciful. And so we know from the rest of the parts of the scriptures that God dealt with his people's sin in order that he might be merciful and gracious to them. And so what happens in Leviticus 16? Once a year, the high priest would go into the tabernacle, this tent, and would go into the very center part of it, the the most holy place. And why? Because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was located. But before that priest went into the, the holy place and witnessed and saw the Ark of the Covenant, you know what he had to do, right? He had to sacrifice animals. He had to sacrifice several animals and he took the blood of those animals and God was teaching him, look, you sin, blood is necessary. But in this case, it's going to be the blood of a substitute. And those substitute animals that take that blood and what's supposed to do with that blood? He goes into the most holy place and above the mercy seat, he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice. 
And it's a result of the blood being shed that God is merciful to a people who have transgressed his law time and time again. See, that's how God can be both righteous and be in the presence of his people because of his great mercy. And you can see how this points us to Jesus, right? You can see that. So, when the people of God have this instruction, follow the ark, you can, if they understood what it represented, they understood what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to follow this God who is holy and righteous and merciful. They're to follow this God who is gracious. He's the one who's going to lead them. He's the one who's going to do a mighty act on their behalf. You see, you cannot chart your own course to the promised land. You cannot make your own way to receive the blessings of God. God charts the way. God says, I am the way. Follow me. And some of you have been following who knows what. And God says to you, follow the ark. Follow me. And yet something really unusual. Verse 4. The people were to remain at a distance from the ark of 2,000 cubits. About 1,000 yards. So why? Now some people think, you know, hey, don't get near the ark. Because we have seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark and we know what happens. You know, your face will melt. It just comes off. You know, God is holy. So don't mess with it. All right, And that is true. I mean, God is holy. But don't get your theology from, you know, that movie, please. But I don't think that's the point in this chapter. But rather, I think, because what we find is that they're to keep this distance because God wanted all his people, hundreds of thousands of people, to be in a position to see him. Right? To see him. Because it tells us, you know, because you don't know where you're going. You've never been this way before. And I'm leading you. So he wants his people to be in a position because if, if all these people are crowding up to the ark, then other people won't be able to see. He says, no, you stand back so that everyone can see. As if God is saying, I want you to focus on me. I want you to see that I am leading you. I want you to witness what I will do. I want everyone to see how I will go into the waters. I want everyone to see how I will cause it to roll back. I want you, as you feel your own weakness and you feel your impotence and you say, how in the world are we going to cross? I want everyone to see my display of power and redemptive work. And you know, as you and I journey to our ultimate promised land, sometimes we're faced with things that are really difficult. Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe it's just really hard and you're being asked to do things that you go, this this is not right. Or maybe you're overworked and you go, how do I get through this? Or maybe it's your marriage. And you know God wants to bless you in your marriage just like he wants to bless you in your workplace. And he wants you to be a blessing. But sometimes it's just really hard. Lord, how do I enjoy your blessing in my marriage? Because this is really difficult. And what the Lord says to you is follow the ark. No, not the little ark. Don't make one. 
and then follow it? No, but follow the one that Ark of the Covenant in Joshua 3 anticipates. Because it anticipates and foreshadows, it pictures Jesus. It pictures who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Isn't Jesus God with us, God in the flesh? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. Isn't He our God with us? And in those moments when you go, I just don't know if I'll ever experience this blessing in my marriage, in my workplace, and because I certainly don't feel very holy as a husband, I don't feel very righteous as a worker, you have to tell yourself the gospel in those moments, and you go to the ark, you go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are my righteousness. I don't have any, but you are my righteousness. You fulfilled all the law of God, all the commands of God. You fulfilled because I could not and I cannot. Jesus, it's because of you that I have mercy. Because you paid for my sins. You paid for my failures as a husband. You paid for my failures as a worker. You shed your blood. You died. And when you shed your blood, you didn't sprinkle it on a mercy seat. No, it poured on a cross. For me, Jesus, I want to follow you are my righteousness and my mercy because in you I have forgiveness. In you I have hope. In you, Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. See, when we look to Jesus and not to ourselves, we know that God is for us. And that which He has begun, He will complete, even though it looks horrifically impossible to you and to me. And that's why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 says, Looking, oh, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. That's a con- consecration part. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But here's my problem, and I suppose you're like me. I'm easily distracted. You know that squirrel thing? We've all experienced that, squirrel, right? God says, follow me, squirrel. I think I have spiritual ADD. I am spiritually, uh, you know, beset with attention deficit disorder. I know that I'm to follow the Lord and keep my eyes on Him. But why am I so easily distracted? My grandson... Jeremiah, uh, when he comes and visits us, he brings, he brings a movie, uh, the movie called Spirit. <laughs> it's about a stallion, right? Just in case you've never seen it. And what's amazing about this is that he'll sit down, and we could be playing and doing all kinds of things, you know, playing with trains, and he's having a great time, but he'll sit down and watch that movie, and there is no one that will distract him. There is no, he is transfixed on that horse. And, you know, and I, as his abuelo, will do silly things and silly antics to try to get him to play with me. And he'll say, Abuelo, stop it. Abuelo, stop it. I wish I could be as transfixed on Jesus as my grandson is. If I understood the desperate condition of my soul, I 
think I would probably be tempted less to be distracted. I've, I've told you this a couple years ago, but I think it gets the point. Uh, years ago, I was in Morocco. I took a trip to Morocco and I went to uh, Fez, a city uh, in Fez called Fez, and I went into the Medina. The Medina is a 7th century city. It's two square miles, uh, so you imagine two square miles of this intricate labyrinth of a city. I mean, you can't even say there are roads. They're maybe you know, six feet wide, you know, walkways between one house and another. And just, it's just this maze. 160,000 people live in this two square miles. And so I went with a group of guys, about eight of us, and uh, we were just being, you know, this is tour guide that was taking us from one tourist trap to another in the Medina. And, you know, I got tired of it, and I said to a couple guys, let's, let's do something differently. So, so we left. We left the tour guide. And we were having a great time. We, we saw the, you know, the rest of the city and uh, did things we probably shouldn't have done. And then as the sun was going down, I said, we got to get out of here. And we tried to get out of here, but we couldn't. We were lost. <laughs> we were so lost. I mean, I, I mean I, when I say it's a labyrinth, I mean it's a labyrinth. And so... There was a young boy, probably about 10, 11 years old, who had been following us. He was probably just you know, curious because of these Americans who are lost. And so we managed to communicate with him, exit, salida, out, sorti, you know, all these words. How do you get out of this place? So, you know what? We gave him a few little you know, coins, and he led us out of the city. I did not have one problem being tempted to go down another road. I did not have a problem. It was pretty clear that I had to keep my eyes on that boy if I wanted out. Oh, would God give you such grace to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. For every look at your sin, for every look at any impossible situation, would you do this great thing of taking ten looks at Christ? Well, finally, not only are we to consecrate ourselves and focus and follow the ark, but we are to take a step of faith. Yes, God is the one who will display his sovereign power. God is the one who's going to bring his people to the promised land. God is the one who's going to take you to his very presence and just fill you and flood your life with mercy and grace and blessing. But just like with the people of God, they're not just to stand around and do nothing. They're to take a step of faith. They're to commit. So I'm speaking to you this morning to commit. At Joshua's command, the Israelites, you know, they've lifted up the Ark of the Covenant, but they didn't do it with their hands. You know they used poles and these rings that were built into the Ark. And then they began to walk. So you can imagine hundreds of thousands of people watching these priests walking toward the river, this rushing, stormy river. I can imagine the priests, in verse 13, tells us, you know, the soles of their feet touch this river. But before the soles of the feet touch that river, I wonder if they looked at each other and said, I hope Joshua is right. <laughs> this is not going to be pleasant <laughs> if we all fall down, right, and get swept away. But so so they enter, okay, so they go into the water. Unlike the rest of Israelites, okay, they go and they get wet. 
and they step into the water, and they must have felt this current, all right? But yet, what does it say in verse 8? They stood still. Look, that's the last thing I wanted to do when I was crossing the river was stand still. I wanted to get through, all right? And so, but they stood still. Why? Oh, that's a step of faith. In order to see the display of God's power. And all of a sudden, the water level started to go down. And I can imagine the sound, not that rushing sound that a river makes, but it must have got really quiet. And this holy hush. The waters recede. The riverbed dries up. I mean, that's just, you know how long it takes water, I mean, in a riverbed, I mean, in a flood season, to dry, but it, somehow it just instantly dries up. The people couldn't see water anywhere. And then slowly, you can imagine these Israelites, one by one, old men, young men, boys and girls, sheep and cattle, their belongings, crossing the riverbed on dry ground. The priests must have stood there holding the ark for hours. Hours. Probably the good part of the whole day. But here's the point. If you are an Israelite, the river just recedes. You don't see the water. You're crossing. What are you thinking? Hurry up. Because the water can come at any time. You don't know. Right? You don't know if that water is going to come rushing back in. So I think they're crossing, but there's, there's fear and trembling. There's, it's scary. It's a scary proposition. Why? You can see, it tells us, verse 16 tells us that the river stood up in a heap near the city of Adam. Here's what you need to know. How far away is the city of Adam? 18 miles away. 18 miles away, God has stopped up the river. That heap is just getting bigger and bigger. But the people of God don't see that as they're crossing. They think that water can come rushing down at any minute. They must have asked, and their children must have asked, is it safe to cross? Is it safe, mom and dad? You know what this reminds me of? In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when uh, Lucy and Susan asked Mr. Beaver, and Mr. Beaver tells them about Aslan, and, and they ask, is Aslan a man? Well, we know Aslan is his Christ figure, right? And, uh, and Mr. Beaver says, safe? Oh, no. He's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So as the people cross, because see, taking a step of faith doesn't mean i got to make sure it's safe. No, you cross believing that God is safe. You trust that God is going to keep His word. You trust that God is going to keep His promises. He's the faithful God. He's the covenant-keeping God. He's the mighty God. He's the merciful God. He's the God who has forgiven you. He's the God who has loved you. Will He not take you across? If he gave you Jesus and Jesus took upon himself your sin, will he not give you all other things? Paul tells us. Oh, he's more than safe. You can trust him. 
And so they had to trust him that he would fulfill his word and that he would keep them from drowning. Does he not promise that to you? That he will keep you from drowning in your sin. He has purchased you by the blood of his son. What a mighty act on the cross. And not just the cross, but the resurrection of raising Jesus from the dead. So if Jesus has died for you, if Jesus has been raised to life for you, will he not take you into his glorious presence? Will he not fulfill all his promises to you? Even though it seems impossible. And it is for you and for me, but not for God. What does taking the step of faith look like in your life? What does it look like for you to act on the Word of God? To trust Him, even when it doesn't seem safe? Some of you are perhaps facing some decisions about work, relationships, things with your children. What does it look like for you to take a step of faith? Let me tell you what it looked like for Kim and for me about six years ago. Some of you know, our son struggled with drug addiction. It was a hard time for us as a family, and we asked ourselves, what do we do? What do you do in the face of that? We wondered, Lord, what happens What happened to all this biblical truth that we shared and imparted to our son? What happened to all the time the family worship where we sung songs to you, O God, and he sang along as well? What happened, O God, to his baptism and his profession of faith? It's a hard time. It seemed like an impossible situation. You know people who have been addicted to drugs and are addicted to alcohol or just just addicted to different kinds of sin. And it just seems really impossible. Well, to make a long story short, we prayed, we thought, we sent him, and I took him to a rehab center in Midland. We had no guarantees. didn't feel safe. But we took a step of faith and trusted that God would display His mighty power. In the 13 months that He was there, Kim and I learned to be a bit more consecrated. We wouldn't have chosen that method. Kim and I learned to be a bit more focused. I wish it could have happened differently. But he's good. God is good. And we leaned heavily on the covenant promises of God. Promises that were made and we clung to. Promises of a God who delights to show mercy to thousands. Was that a step of faith for us? Oh, yes, it was. And God was merciful because he restrained the raging currents of sin and addiction in our son's life and brought him into new life 
We didn't control it. We could only plead. We could trust that God is good. Jesus said it like this, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And I don't know what you are facing, but will you take a step of faith? Maybe it's your first step of faith. Maybe it's a 200th step of faith. God has done a mighty act for His people in the person of Jesus Christ. Will you take a step of faith? You might say, well, I might suffer. And let me say to you, if it's true that you suffer, then you can grab on to what the Apostle Paul says, that you'll learn to share in the sufferings of Christ. If you suffer because of that step of faith. But what if I die? Then you lay hold of this Jesus who took the sting of death in your place and was raised to life and has victory over death. You see, you cannot lose. You cannot lose. And you and I are called to take a step of faith and entrust ourselves not to a pint-sized, tiny God, but a mighty God, the Lord of all the earth, who will do whatever it takes to take you and me, His redeemed home. Give me eyes. Give me a heart. Give me a life. May it be consecrated to you.